You are listening to a podcast from The National. In what has been a busy week in the region and globally, this is the Business Extra podcast. Uh, My name's Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor, and today I am joined by Kelsey Warner, also Assistant Business Editor. Welcome, Kelsey. Hello, Chris. But first, let's have a look at some of the main stories making the news this week. National Bank of Ras al-Khaimah, or RAC Bank, reported a 26% year-on-year rise in second quarter net profit as interest and non-interest income rose and impairment charges for bad loans fell. Net profit for the first three months ending June 30th hit 285 million dirham, the lender said on Wednesday, and the second quarter results beat the estimates of the investment bank EFG Hermes. Meanwhile, in Saudi Arabia, Virgin Hyperloop One, the futuristic transportation company that uses magnetic levitation to revolutionize travel, said it will undertake a study to build what would be the world's longest test track for the Hyperloop. Uh, The company, which counts Dubai logistics firm DP World as its biggest shareholder, is also considering plans for an R&D development center, as well as a manufacturing hub north of Jeddah, nearby the new track. And talking of technology, Noon.com is teaming up with the Chinese tech company Neolix to test driverless vehicles designed to make last-minute deliveries in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, according to the uh, Dubai e-commerce platform. Um, Over the next few weeks, Noon will trial the autonomous vehicles to complete the deliveries in key areas of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, the company said. The driverless vans are designed to be especially customised to suit the region's weather conditions and will be integrated with Noon's logistics platform. And looking at them, they do in fact look like giant refrigerators on wheels. Just big freezers on wheels. Indeed. Without drivers. Uh, and meanwhile, in Beijing, Abu Dhabi Global Market and state-controlled Abu Dhabi National Oil Company on Monday signed agreements with key Chinese entities that will help boost bilateral cooperation across the energy value chain and help foster financial ties to increase cross-border investment, the party said. These include ADNOC signing a strategic agreement with state-owned China National Offshore Oil Corporation to explore collaboration on ultra-sour gas development in Abu Dhabi, exploration for offshore hydrocarbons, and the sale and purchase of liquefied natural gas, for which China is the world's largest buyer. The deals were signed during a visit by Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, Abu Dhabi's Crown Prince and Deputy Supreme Commander of the UAE Armed Forces to China. And staying in China, EMR Properties will develop 10% of the total land area of Beijing's new Daxing International Airport, with residential and leisure facilities in a project worth 40.5 billion dirham, according to state news agency WAM. In May, EMR signed a preliminary agreement with Beijing New Aeropolis Holdings to jointly develop a business and tourism complex at Daxing, integrating retail, entertainment, office, hotel, convention and leisure space within the aero-economic area of the new airport. The airport is being built to handle 120 million passengers a year, which could indeed make it the busiest in the world. Saudi Arabia's affordable housing initiatives are starting to show some green shoots, driving demand for projects in Jeddah geared towards low- to middle-income earners, with a more than two-fold increase in the number of contracts year-to-date in May over the same period a year earlier, global consultancy company CBRE said in a report on Sunday. A total of some 58,000 mortgage contracts representing a value of 27 billion Saudi rials were signed in the first five months of the year, according to the real estate report. 
And further afield, troubled Boeing will report an after-tax charge of $4.9 billion, or around $18 billion dirham, in its second quarter results. And that's in connection with the 737 grounding following the two fatal crashes. The loss is based on potential concessions and other considerations to customers for disruptions related to the 737 grounding and the associated delivery delays, Boeing said. Saudi Arabia's renewable energy efforts are picking up pace with its first wind power project, a 500 million US dollar scheme, reaching a financial close, according to its developers. The 400 megawatt wind farm, located 896 kilometers north of Riyadh in the Al Juf region, is the kingdom's first utility scale wind project and was awarded to the consortium led by France's EDF and Abu Dhabi's Mazdar in January. And back in China, or relative to China, Non-oil trade between the UAE and the country reached $43 billion, or around $157.9 billion dirham last year, accounting for 9.7% of the UAE's total non-oil trade globally, the UAE economy minister Sultan bin Saeed al-Mansouri said. The world's second biggest economy, which also accounted for 16% of the UAE's non-oil trade among Asian countries, has a growing two-way relationship with the UAE, the minister said. Uh, and China is the source of 27% of the UAE's imports from Asia. The Emirates is also the biggest recipient of Chinese goods in the Arab world, accounting for 29% of exports in the region. While non-oil trade has been in the headlines, so too has the global and particularly regional hydrocarbon sector following recent attacks on tankers in the Strait of Hormuz. It seems many of those incidents involved vessels sailing under flags of countries located far from the Middle East. For instance, Panama and Marshall Islands flagged ships Kokuka Courageous and Front Altair came under attack in the Gulf of Oman last month, while the Panamanian flagged MT Ria disappeared in the Strait of Hormuz last week. The Sten Impero, meanwhile, which was seized by Iran on Friday, was unusually a Swedish vessel that flew under a British flag. Joining us to talk about why these vessels are caught up in conflict and why so many tankers sail under flags of countries that are not party to conflict in the region is the National's energy reporter, Jennifer Nyana. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. Firstly, what does the term flag of convenience actually mean? Uh, the flag, the term f flags of convenience is not a very friendly term. Um, it's a pejorative term. It comes from uh, the open registry systems that certain countries like Panama and Liberia operate. Um, they provide an easy access for, a sh for ship owners to register their vessels online. Mm -hmm. uh, they also allow them to, consider, to, con to cut costs considerably when it comes to um, paying workers, for instance. And they also offer ease of... Um, access, uh, lax regulations, and with a shipping industry where costs are rising, insurance costs, particularly in the, in the Middle East, uh, are rising. It's 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 a system that has been working for for decades, and it's it's something that's uh, that's most commonly used. I think around it's the vo the number of ships or the percentage of ships. Um, that operate under this system fly that is fly or sail under flags of a different country to the owner is around 80 to 90 percent. Um, so it is the norm of the shipping industry and something that hasn't really been questioned or come into question for a very long time. And obviously with the rising tensions in the Middle East and as you say the higher insurance uh, shipping insurance costs 
it, would you say it's likely that ship owners will continue to, to, to operate under these flags of, con- of convenience? Traditionally, it's been the way to navigate hostile waters. Um, the U.S. during the Cold War used, um, used used to run most of its fleets on on Liberian flags, so that at least the, it, its merchant vessels uh, could remain neutral during the Cold War. So it's seen as as a as a convenient way of 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 navigating hostile choke points. But, you know, it's not a foolproof way, though there's this common um, tendency to flag hop that is use one registry and then quickly change because these these open registries allow you to change flags um, as as quickly as possible. Um, It's it's not too difficult to put two and two together and figure out where this vessel is, who the the owner could possibly be. And also in the case of of Stena Impera, which was a British flagged vessel, but but the the owner is Swedish, it also brings countries that may not really be related to the conflict, drawn into a conflict that they have no interest in, like the Swedish authorities, for instance, being drawn in um, to a a geopolitical tussle Mm -hmm. between Britain and Iran. Uh, But in spite of that, given... um, you know, some countries in the region would continue to like, continue to see, would like to see their exports go into the markets. This sort of uh, system is likely to remain in place. And with the Swedish ship, I mean, it was quite unusual for them to choose, a, for any ship to choose a British flag. I mean, what do you think was the reasoning behind that? Um, it's it's difficult to say. In fact, the uh, British shipping registry has seen a decline of about 30% since Brexit uh, because of you know, countries moving away and, and and ship owners looking to register their ships abroad. So it's very interesting to see that this ship, in spite of warnings from Iran against British vessels transiting the Strait of Hormuz, chose to fly under a British flag of convenience. It is quite strange, but uh, we can't really get to the bottom of this. The, the Swedish authorities, on the other hand, have seen their hands tied. They haven't been able to do much. It's, it's Britain that's still lobbying for the vessel to be uh, returned to, mm-hmm. to the UK. And of course, one of the things that shipping regulators um, often point to is, is is the concern that flags of convenience can enable, you know, illegal transport of of, of banned goods. How does that actually manifest itself? Uh, there was an incident, I think, in two thousand three, when um, a North Korean uh, vessel, which was on its way to Tuvalu, was was stopped by the Australian authorities for smuggling drugs, and in fact. Uh, North Korea, which which has also seen its flag used as a flag of convenience, um, is is uh, is seen as one of those flags of convenience that that, that are used for really dodgy deals, like nu- smuggling of nuclear weapon fuel, drugs, um, even illegal arms trade. Uh, so there are certain flags that are um, immediately seen as 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 a red flag for for this kind of trade. Um, in fact, there's because of this uh, because of the increasing scrutiny on flags of convenience and um, you know the 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 trade in contraband. Uh, Panama, which has the largest fleet uh, because of because of its open registry system, has started you know uh, deregistering some of the vessels under its fleet. I think around sixty have been removed from its list in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. It's uh, interesting times uh, uh, here and and worldwide. Um, Obviously, that might, uh, one would think, impact um, the price of oil, given that these are generally, well, they are tankers that have been targeted. Um, Has that, uh, have you seen that happen? Uh, Since Friday, when Stena Impera was was impounded by the Iranian authorities or by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, when the markets opened, oil gained by about $2, but it settled back. There has been no 
no further movement. I think the market's uh, well supplied. Uh, the threat of real conflict is still far removed in the sight of some. Uh, so while oil prices jump a little bit, there hasn't been, uh, you know, uh, a movement. Uh, there hasn't been a rally as, as, as one would expect. Well, me jumping back in here. Hi. Um, I just I know that um, the International Energy Agency earlier this week issued a more macro report kind of influenced by what's going on, but divorced from that sort of day-to-day jolt that it seems like we've been getting for the past few weeks amid all of these headlines. Can you talk a little bit about what the agency said about what we can expect for the second half of the year? So the International Energy Agency last year said that oil demand growth for this year would would be around 1.5 million barrels per day. They revised this earlier this year, I think around May, they said it would be 1.3. And now Fatih Birol, who heads the agency, has said that oil demand growth is 1.1 million, will be 1.1 million barrels per day uh, for now, but they're likely to revise it for the second quarter. And this is because demand from China has fallen considerably. Uh, China has also been stocking up on its on its strategic petroleum reserves, and now that has also reached a sort of saturation point. So there would, you know, it, demand from China is is the biggest barometer for the for the for the global oil markets and. It's it's unlikely that the situation will improve, which has been one of the major major um, you know forces dominating the oil markets for this year. The the trade war with the U.S. has really dampened uh, growth, um, and and after Hurricane Barry, we've seen uh, production pick up. Um, even though the stocks aren't as high as before, the market is still fairly supplied. Still fairly supplied, and still kind of tepid amid U.S.-China tensions and rising Middle East tensions. So a tempered tempered outlook from IEA once again following another tempered outlook back in May that Mm -hmm. it issued. And um, interestingly, amid all of this, we've also had a lot of Saudi renewable energy headlines in the past week. It sounds like Saudi Arabia's efforts in wind energy is actually starting to pick up. Um, So shifting gears, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, Saudis both onshore uh, wind aspirations and then they're kind of interesting offshore uh, windmills soon to go up. So Saudi Arabia, which is the world's largest oil exporter, has been exploring renewable energy, mostly solar, but they've also warmed up to wind. Uh, so this week we heard about the financial close of the first ever utility scale wind project, which is located in the north of the country. It's it's uh, a it's a scheme being executed by a consortium of France's EDF and Mazdar, which is an Abu Dhabi-based uh, renewables entity. It's a 400 megawatt project. Um, they've closed it for 500 million, and uh, they seem really keen on wind. In fact, uh, Wood McKenzie have said that Saudi Arabia will be the biggest wind market for the Middle East until 2024. Um, there's another one. They've also, they're, they're being a bit ambitious, but we'll see um, if, 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 if this could also take off in the Middle East, which does not have currently any offshore wind projects. But Saudi Arabia is looking to looking at developing offshore wind as well. Saipem, an Italian uh, energy services company, along with a UAE-based company, is looking into this. And that is an, about a 500-megawatt scheme that they're looking at. So last year, the, the newly established Saudi Renewables Energy Department said they were looking at 800 megawatts of wind projects coming to the market. So if we add 
if we add the capacities they're looking at both onshore and offshore, that's almost 900. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so great, yeah. real utility scale yeah. can actually power tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of homes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the economics of why Saudi Arabia might want to start relying on wind power domestically, given that it is a petrostate? Um, well, Saudi Arabia in the past has um, has burnt oil to generate power. Now they moved away from that. They use, they've use uh, they switched their power stations to run on gas. Uh, but they've also realized, uh, you know, there are difficulties of importing gas to Saudi and the country is deficient in the fuel. Uh, it's given that we're in the Arabian Peninsula where there's no shortage of sunshine, it's, it's a more obvious solution to use power from the sun. So they've had ambitious projects. They're looking at, um, you know, massive projects with Neom, but they're also, they've also established a new uh, entity within the Saudi um, Energy Ministry to develop uh, both solar and wind projects with, with priority given to, wi- to solar, of course. Um, and the PIF, that is a Saudi uh, investment fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, has said that it would take a 70% equity in any renewables projects, and then they would also invite foreign partners to it. So they're taking this really seriously. And the main concern for the Saudis is to make sure that at least domestic power generation will now uh, be run on gas and a mixture of 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 renewables with the oil left for the for the export markets or what they're now increasingly looking at, which is downstream that is turning the, the oil to products. Yeah, I remember uh, a while ago um, one of the oil analysts saying that uh, basically if you if you can sell a barrel of oil for $50, if you, if you can instead turn it into 25 car bumpers, then you can send it for, sell it for $500. So. Yeah. It obviously makes sense to do that. Yeah. Um, and the wind coming off the ocean is free. It is indeed, <laughs> as is the sun. <laughs> and with that, many thanks to Jennifer Nana, our energy reporter, and also to my co-host today, Kelsey Warner. That was the Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson. Subscribe to us on your favourite app, And we'll see you again next week.